0: For love. Welcome to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Rao Finkbinder, Powered by Mom's Rising. We have a really great show for you today. It's powerful and it's gonna fire you up and it's gonna give you hope. We start out covering the free the pill campaign and the state of birth control in America. Then we dive into the power of the Latino vote, Hispanic Heritage Month, and how to close the wage gaps after that we discuss how to get more news coverage on the issues that you care about and then we close the show covering the how and the why we need to stop the childcare cliff from happening in september we're going to jump right in with our first guest we are joined by a guest who you're going to really enjoy hearing from you're going to be powered up you're going to be interested you're going to be excited about some good news victoria nichols with free the pill and ibis reproductive health welcome victoria
1: Thank you so much, Kristen. It's, it's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to chat.
0: I appreciate it even more because you're doing such important work to free the pill and give people access to birth control. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about the recent victory?
1: Sure, yeah. We're, we're just as excited as you are. Um, we are thrilled that um, in July the FDA approved the first-ever over-the-counter birth control pill uh, in the United States. Uh, This is really a victory for reproductive health uh, and justice. Uh, It's going to expand access uh, to people, particularly people who face barriers to accessing birth control pills due to systemic inequities. Um, And we're really excited to see this uh, go on the shelf. It's expected to be um, on the shelf in early 2024. And this has really been um, a victory that's come due to principled partnership and work uh, with our our Free the Pill Coalition uh, that's been working on this since 2004. And so it's been a, a long journey, but we're very excited about this um, this coming and and expanding equitable access for folks.
0: And what does it mean this coming and expanding equitable access? Are we talking? We can walk into a pharmacy and without a prescription, anybody um, buy birth control pills?
1: That's it. That's exactly it. And so, so you know, previously, and um, under the prescription model, you had to um, you know schedule an appointment with a provider, um, go to their office. Usually, you know, you wait a couple of weeks or even months for that appointment. Um, you know, get a prescription and then go to the pharmacy to fill that pres- prescription uh, with O pill, this progestin only pill, going over the counter. People can walk into their pharmacy. We're also hoping it'll be in retail um, retail stores as well, and pick it off the sh- pick it up off the shelf um, and walk out with without a prescription needed. Um, so this will truly expand access. It will. Uh, reduce a lot of the barriers um, that are, are involved in the prescription model, and allow people to to really get it on their own terms, on their own schedule, um, and uh, access it in a much more accessible way.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's big. So how will people get instructions on how to use it?
1: That's a great question. Um, so part of the um, FDA approval process, uh, the pharmaceutical company has to submit an application to the FDA. And uh, one of the studies that they have to uh, conduct is a is a, a self selection study, uh, which is when um, people in the study determine that they're they're the right uh, candidate for a product and also a label comprehension study. Uh, so, on the back of all medications that are over the counter, there is a label um, that provides very clear instructions on how to take it. Um, I'm sure anyone who's taken an over the counter product has has seen that label on the back. And this product will have a label on the back that tells you um, exactly what to do, um, exactly how to take it and, and, how, and how to you know use the product. So that's how people will get their instructions. There are also typically uh, pamphlets inside of, of packages that you can read more information and there will also be um, information available
0: online. I love it. In other words, listeners, it's going to be very obvious. You will have specific instructions on how to use the pill when you buy it over the counter instead of having to go to the doctor's office, wait for the prescription, wait, 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 which we do not have time to wait to get access to birth control. Access to birth control is so important to our bodily autonomy, to being able to make decisions about what we're going to do in the future and to our health. There's so many reasons why access to birth control is critical. How did this fight go? How was it won? How did this victory happen?
1: So, uh, you know, it's a great question. Um, Back in 2004, um, the coalition first came together. It was called the Oral Contraceptives Over-the-Counter Working Group. We've now uh, changed to be called the Free the Pill Coalition. Uh, But the work really happened through uh, partnering with young people, youth activists, partnering with reproductive justice advocates, also researchers and providers to really build the evidence um, in the field to support this, so lots of research has been done on the, over the past two decades and over the past 60 years since birth control pills were, were first approved um, for prescription use. And so the, the biggest part of it was building the evidence and building the support for this, really um, demonstrating through research that this is safe, this is effective, this is appropriate for over-the-counter use. And then in 2016, IBIS Reproductive Health, um, it, it was support from the coalition partnered with um, HRA Pharma now, Perigo, to work to build the evidence um, to submit an application to the FDA. And so that was submitted um, and the FDA reviewed it. We also really geared up for the advisory committee meeting, which happened in May, um, which uh, is an opportunity for public testimony to the FDA. And the FDA advisory committee panel voted unanimously uh, in support of bringing this product over the counter. And so that was also another huge win. Um, so lots has, happen- has happened over the past two decades nearly to uh, really build the momentum for this. And we're just very excited for um, this to be on the shelves in early 2024 and, and really thank the entire coalition and all our partners for all the work that's done to get get to this point.
0: Yeah. And can you share from your perspective? Why is it so important to free the pill? Why is birth control so important?
1: You know, this is really about um, about people's ability to control their reproductive health, to plan their futures to plan their families to decide if and when they want to have children. Um, And so having, you know, birth control over the counter, freeing the pill is really gives people bodily autonomy, gives them the decision making power uh, over their futures. And it, you know, bringing it over the counter is really reducing the barriers that um, particularly black, indigenous people of color, um, young people, people who are working to make ends meet face due to systemic inequities and often uh, keeps birth control out of out of reach for certain communities. And so the more we can access um, this birth control pills, the more we can access um, things to take care of our own health uh, without barriers, without stigma, without any uh, sort of um, uh, restrictions when we want it and when we need it uh, really boosts health, uh, autonomy, well-being overall.
0: Yeah, For sure. And what a lot of people are starting to realize and talk about is that as access to abortion care, which is needed um, by so many, and a lot of people don't realize that six out of 10 people who need and have abortions are already moms as access to abortion care is restricted. Access to birth control is even more important. And have you all worked on the nexus between uh, access to abortion care being taken away and really unfair not okay, harmful, destructive ways, and the increased need for birth control. Now, birth control listeners cannot replace all of the healthcare and other reasons that abortion care would be needed. Of course, no birth control is 100% effective, although it's better than nothing usually. Um, And also, there's many other reasons that abortion care would be needed than lack of birth control. But given all of that, given that giant caveat, what has been the nexus for you all between free the pill and the pulling back of access to really critically important abortion
1: care. You know, this is such a, a, a timely um, moment um, for for access. I think the point that you just made, uh, Kristen, is so critical that ab- uh, abortion and birth and um, and contraception are different. Um, they're both um, access to both are are limited um, and um, and barriers uh, to access really fall harder on certain communities. And so, you know, there definitely is this, this connection, this need for access to both abortion and contraception uh, to be expanded. And, you know, in this moment where we have more limited access to, to abortion, uh, contraception is something that we definitely want people to have uh, as much access as possible. Um, but, you know, with that, with that caveat that contraception isn't going to solve. All the uh, the issues around around abortion and they really are two different um, two different needs and more access is needed to both of them.
0: For sure. So speaking of more access being needed to both of them, what can people do? What are the next steps in this battle toward bodily autonomy?
1: Sure. So you know we're at Free the Pill all about uh, making sure that this is equity equitably accessible, and a big part of that is ensuring that it is affordable. And so uh, a big part of affordability is uh, making sure that this is uh, covered by insurance, fully covered by insurance. Um, and so, uh, you know, currently most private uh, health plans must cover all FDA approved methods of contraception, including OTC uh, products like emergency contraception. And uh, we're, we're hoping uh, when it comes over the counter. However, um, insurance companies can um, require a prescription in order uh, for insurance to cover uh, uh, birth control. And so when you're thinking about over-the-counter products, requiring a prescription really defeats the purpose of of it being over-the-counter. It adds an unnecessary barrier uh, to affordable access. And so we're really calling on our policymakers to ensure that future over-the-counter birth control pills um, this one that's coming on the shelf in early 2024 is fully covered by insurance um, on private and public plans uh, so that people can get it at an affordable price um, get it for uh, covered by insurance and also the issue beyond insurance coverage is that this is priced affordably and you know the the company hasn't announced the price yet but we want to make sure that this is priced affordably so people who either don't have insurance or can't use their insurance or don't want to use their insurance for any reason can access it um, at an affordable price.
0: Are there ways that people who are listening can participate in that advocacy campaign for fair pricing?
1: Sure. So we have a World Contraception Day coming up on September 26th. um, And this is going to be a moment where we're going to be really uh, lifting up some calls to action around um, affordable access around insurance coverage. And so encourage folk, uh, folks to, um, follow through the pill. Um, we'll be sharing more information about how to engage around world contraception day and how to participate. Um, please follow us on, on social media to stay tuned for the conversation and, and, um, you know, engage and support, um, our work as we are, we're really calling for affordable access as this uh, hits the shelves in early 2024.
0: Thank you. I'm just so thrilled that the Free the Pill campaign is happening. I'm thankful for your leadership, and I can't wait until they hit the shelves so people in every state in the nation will hopefully be able to have the access to birth control. And that is my last question. Will everybody in every state in the nation have access at that point? Yeah.
1: Yes, um, you know, the FDA uh, functions at the federal level. This is going to be approved uh, for, this has been approved for over-the-counter use um, for uh, across the country. And so we, uh, it should be available in every single state um, on on the shelves. um, And we're, you know, looking forward to retailers and pharmacies stocking it and putting it on the shelves throughout the country.
0: I love it. So everybody in every state who's listening, you will have increased access to birth control, which is so important through the Free the Pill campaign and effort and through Victoria Nichols' work with IBIS Reproductive Health. Thank you so much. I can't even tell you how many thank yous. Thank you so much. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for being on.
1: Thank you so much, Kristen. Really appreciate the opportunity and uh, kudos to Moms Rising for all the work that you've done as well. I uh, really appreciate it.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest, who is an amazing author with the Washington Post, talking about news coverage and how you can get more of the coverage that you want. We'll be back in a quick flash. Me, Kristen Rao, Finkfinder powered by Moms Rising. We have a spectacular journalist who you are going to just find so compelling coming on with us right now. She has really important things to share with you, Catherine Rampell, who is an opinion columnist with The Washington Post and more. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad you're on. And your article titles are so spectacular. One of the things that I wanted to start talking with you about is how you make your articles and your article titles and all of that so snappy.
2: (laughs) I wish I could take credit. I usually do not write the headlines. Um, Sometimes I offer suggestions and sometimes they are accepted and sometimes they are not, but uh, the goal of course, is to try to find ways to make the usually um, somewhat technical policy subjects that I write about sound interesting which is a challenge, right? Cause I'm writing about like the social safety net and healthcare, uh, poverty, taxes, all sorts of things like that. And um, those are not always the sexiest of subjects, but I do try to find ways to help people connect with them. So like, um, I think the, the piece that caught your eye or your producer's eye was something that I wrote um, a few days ago about childcare and how there's this big childcare funding cliff that's coming in a few weeks because there's a federal program um, that is about to sunset and likely put something like 70,000 different childcare providers out of work and cause 3 million kids to lose their childcare slots, all of that. Um, So the headline that uh, this one I did write that I proposed was uh, think childcare is hard to find now, wait a couple of months. So the goal there <laughs> was to make this you know, potentially dry subject about a federal funding program that's lapsing resonate with people by helping them understand how it's potentially going to affect their own family situations.
0: And I think that is really compelling and important the way that you're writing about it, because a lot of people don't realize that the unpaid and paid work of care is, is what makes all other work possible. Yep. and that- <laughs> The policy itself can sound kind of wonky, as you just said, or complicated, but it's not that complicated. And I'm so glad that you decomplicate it for us with your articles. Basically, child care costs more than college in most states in our country. And child care workers are some of the lowest paid workers in most places in the country. And but parents and care workers are between a rock and a hard place. So we need actual investment in the child care infrastructure so that parents can go to work so that kids can thrive and so that child care workers can stay in their profession. And yet, time after time, we find that the budgeting when it comes to child care falls too short and that is really short-sighted in our economy as well because when we push parents out of the labor force by not having accessible child care we have supply chain issues our whole economy falters to the extent that jerome powell recently said that we're losing our international competitiveness he is the federal reserve chair what do you think is going to take to put child care into the spotlight where it actually belongs as the big Economic heavyweight policy that it is? That's a great question. You know, I would have thought that the
2: massive disruptions to the care industry and to schooling um, back in 2020 would have made this problem a little more salient. Even, you know, even for people who don't have kids who aren't dealing with who's um, caring for and educating and investing in my kids during the day, like while I'm doing other things, including working. Um, there were so many very visible consequences of childcare centers closing, of schools, you know, at least physical locations of schools shutting down um, and the disruptions throughout the rest of the economy as parents were pulled away and had to um, you know, d- handle more, even more childcare responsibilities than they would normally have to do. I would have guessed that would have been a moment of reckoning. And yet, obviously, it was not. I mean, it did lead to some temporary major investments in the childcare system, right? I mean, a, a number of laws, including, you know, the, the big ones that people have heard of, like the CARES Act, uh, the American Rescue Plan, those did invest temporarily in the care industry. And actually the um, the American Rescue Plan, which passed in early 2021, had the biggest investment in the childcare industry, I wanna say since like, you know, World War II. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, it there was some attention paid to it and some dollars importantly attached to that attention, but now it's lapsing. Um, and e- today, uh, the childcare industry is still not, doing as well, even as it was in 2020, and it was not doing great then for all the reasons you just explained, right, that there's a, a huge gap between what families can afford to pay and what it takes to, to keep the, the child care center operating and, and paying a living wage and all of that. Uh, so you need something to fill in that wedge. A lot of childcare centers were already kind of teetering on the edge back before the pandemic. The pandemic disrupted things further these stopgap measures made some difference. Um, and I do wonder if when they go away and lots of childcare centers alter um, and possibly shut down altogether, maybe then people will start to notice, but I don't know. It's like, it's amazing to me that with women's labor force participation or you know prime working age women's labor force participation at, at record highs, in particular, that there hasn't been sort of a, a cultural um, nationwide recognition that child care is a necessity both for investing in, in kids and making sure that they, you know, hit their developmental milestones and thrive and all of that, but also keeping the rest of the economy and the rest of the labor market functioning. So I don't know. I mean, I write about it um, and I hear I get lots of panicked emails um, and calls from parents who are like, wait, what now? Like, I didn't realize this is why my, you know, the tuition at my childcare center or whatever went up, um, or this is why, uh, you know, I've been hearing these rumors that things, you know, that the place that, I, that serves my kids may be going under, et cetera. But beyond that, it still seems like a lot of Americans are kind of living in a bubble um, and not recognizing the significance of uh, the potential collapse of this industry
0: and the ability for us to avoid the potential collapse you mentioned yes that. yes yes it's not of, hopeless yeah yeah there's <laughs> there a without hope there are actually solutions and one immediate solution you actually touched on is that there were extended provisions in the pandemic laws that passed like the american rescue plan that helped stabilize the child care industry as a whole which is so needed because again Childcare is like building a bridge. You know, it's part of our basic infrastructure. We need to take the bridge of childcare so parents can go to work, kids can learn, and childcare workers can continue to have their jobs, right? And so because of that, during the pandemic, there were some extra provisions put forward in an emergency way to stabilize the childcare industry and we are about to lose those in September. It's called the childcare cliff, which is your article covers just so beautifully, but it's 16 billion with a B dollars, people who are listening in terms of our finance gap and our national budget. So everybody who's listening right now, just pick up the phone and call your member of Congress and say, hello, please avert the childcare cliff by funding 16 billion, again, with a B, we don't want an M, Although we'll take an M, but we, want, <laughs> we actually need 16 billion with a B um, dollars in the budgeting as you move forward. There's a bunch of different ways that it can be put into the budgeting, be put into a continuing resolution, be put into all kinds of different ways. So you don't have to tell them how to put the money in. Just tell them that you need the money. And by them, I mean Congress. So, again, pick up the phone, call your member of Congress and say, we need 16 billion dollars to avoid a child care cliff. Um, due to funds ending in September. What is your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely.
2: Congress needs to act. There are a number of political challenges here, obviously. One of which is that Republican politicians have basically said anything, any program that passed under the auspices of a pandemic era bill, as was the case for this child care stabilization fund, for example, that passed in the American Rescue Plan, is supposed to have been, you know, was always intended to be temporary. This is not a permanent expansion of the safety net of any kind of government spending of any kind, you know, what, what was pandemic era stays pandemic era. Um, and now that the public health emergency is over now, of course, there may be another emergency that arises, i.e. the collapse of this industry, but that's the stance that Republicans have taken. And so far, um, President Biden does not really seem to be willing to go to bat for this. Um, he has said publicly many times that he supports more funding for childcare, more funding for pre-K, more funding for um, early early childhood learning of all kinds. But when it comes to the emergency supplemental bill that he asked uh, that he that, that basically his administration submitted recently, um, asking for additional funding for Ukraine, amongst other things. He left this out. Um, there was a large group of Democratic lawmakers who asked for the $16 billion with a B um, to be included in that uh, supplemental bill, and he left it out. So I don't know what to read into that, except that he, I guess, decided this was not a fight worth having or not a fight he thought he could win, or maybe it would derail other priorities. Whatever the rationale was, I think it's disappointing that Biden did not include it here. Now again, his in other contexts, he has been very supportive of funding for childcare. So again, I wouldn't give up hope, but for clearly, sure. I, the, yeah, clearly the fact that he didn't include it um, suggests that the political obstacles are large.
0: The political obstacles are definitely large. And I also join you in not giving up hope, uh, importantly, the Biden administration, well, didn't put the number in, did put the wording in um, yeah. so their messaging to Congress. So it wasn't completely absent. And we have fortunately had indications since then that they are fighting for childcare for that 16 billion with a B behind the scenes and continue to fight. So I would not give up hope. I have hope, hope, hope. And then we had some breaking news today, which was pretty spectacular and also was reported in the Washington Post. And that is there was a um, just over a billion dollar shortfall in the money needed for the WIC, Women and Infant Children Nutrition Program, to be funded in a way that enabled it to support all the people who need it. And that was just pushed forward by the White House. So we've had some indications that some parts that were missed in first round got pushed through, are getting pushed through um, more uh, closer to this time of the recording of this <laughs> segment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and uh, by the way, I love the Washington Post. for Thank you for <laughs> reporting on all the things. The WIC news came out in the Washington Post too today. So I love all that you write about and how you write about it. What's your advice? We have just two minutes left to people who are listening on how to get real news about the real policies that impact real people, not just sort of watching a political football about policies that may or may not um, actually ever be able to pass.
2: Huh. Well, I think it's important for readers to in- readers, viewers, you know, however you consume your news, to engage with those stories. I feel like I this common complaint that I often hear is like, why doesn't the news media cover substantive issues about things that affect real people? And I feel like I do write about these things, but I get a lot more clicks, you know, when I write about something goofy or whatever that Donald Trump did. Um, so I think it is reward, uh, the, the news coverage that you care about with your eyeballs, um, and, and clicks and ears and, and all the other ways you may, uh, digest news
0: tweet out tweet it out
2: tweet it out um you know put it on facebook put it on all the different social media channels um i think that's part of it i think it's about you know um sending feedback to um to news organizations that you care about this coverage not just the horse race stuff um it's about engaging with your local officials um, and your federal officials, as you were saying, you know, call your Congress people to try to elevate these issues and make them part of the bigger conversation. Because again, like a lot of these kinds of stories can get written off as relatively dry. Uh, but they're I think they're really important to people's lives. <laughs> if they lose their child care, they lose their Medicaid coverage, they lose WIC, you know, whatever kinds of uh, policy we're talking about. Or those are just a few that you know, I've covered and there are many others that my um, that my colleagues obviously write about as well that are critical. So it's about trying to find ways to um, demonstrate that those issues are important to you by sharing them with people, by amplifying them. And, um, you know, and and telling your local newspaper that you care about these things, so, you know, what, whether it's The Washington Post or again, your, your local Metro Daily or whatever it is. Um, making sure that they know that you care about this coverage um i think that that will consciously or subconsciously (laughs) um
0: encourage more attention to it a hundred percent agree with you and as we're closing this segment i want to let all our listeners know that i hope they also check out another article you wrote that's titled turns out babies are really bad at filling out paperwork on medicaid unwinding why is this important because 50 percent of the people 92 million people who need to refill out paperwork are actually children. So read the article and then go to Medicaid.gov and check out if your Medicaid is going to continue. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for writing. Thank you for being a spectacular journalist. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Next up, we're talking about Hispanic Heritage Month, the power of the Latino vote and how to close the wage gaps. We'll be back in just a quick moment.
1: Five for love. Five for,
0: for, for love. Welcome back to Breaking Through with me, Kristen Rao ThinkPinder, powered by Mom's Rising. We are joined right now by an amazing, spectacular, wonderful, 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 wonderful! guest, who you're going to love hearing from, Zochi Oseguera of Moms Rising and Mamas con poder. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. Hello. I want to talk to you about so many things. I'm so excited. Hispanic Heritage Month, Grandparents Day, Abortion Access, Reproductive Rights, the power of the Latina vote, all of the things. But let's start out with Hispanic Heritage Month. What's happening? Hispanic Heritage Month is a
3: month-long celebration of the culture of latinx communities in the u.s the culture contributions and our awesome power of um being a being a, a political force you know it is also important to make sure that we understand that as latinos that we are a political force every year Kristen, 900 1,000 Latinos turn 18. And we at Moms Rising and Mamás con Poder wanna celebrate enchiladas and salsa, but also wanna celebrate that we are going to be registering people to vote, registering Latinos to vote, and that we have a superpower.
0: And you do have a superpower in the vote and i want to talk about that a little bit more what does that big voting block mean in terms of power it is we are a very young um
3: vote voting block where uh, latinos are very young um the average age is i believe in their in in our 30s we have um political power 30 uh, over 30 million Latinos are eligible to vote and we are in very specific key states. So we are very much in um, an important uh, voting block and we need to believe it. I think that as a Latina, I can share that sometimes we come from countries that are not very democratic as in, oh, our vote is not gonna count. And and so we come with that um w- with that feeling that our vote never makes a difference. But I tell you and I tell everybody our vote makes a huge difference in our communities. And so at Mom's Rising, we are committed to make sure that Latinas and Latina moms and our families believe that because we are here to um to, to make sure our future generations
0: have everything we need to succeed and thrive and one of the things you mentioned is that votes are important votes have an impact votes make a difference and particularly in elections where there are local races so city council state legislature county council um all of those races even state governor we have seen be won or lost by five votes people five votes. So even just you and your friends to all the listeners voting could make a difference. So when we're talking about a giant Latina voting block, we're talking about so much power to make a difference in the outcome of not just presidential and congressional races, which absolutely there's power there, but also everything else. City council, county council, state legislature, governors, you know, school boards, everything. So when you get your ballot, people who are listening, make sure that you vote all the way down the ballot for every single person who's on there and use Google to figure out who you're voting for and what they stand for. Speaking of which, so G, if people want to register to vote, how can they do that if they want to check to make sure that they're registered to vote?
3: Yeah. At Moms Rising and uh, Mamas con Poder, we have uh, we have you. we got you covered. We have um, our platform where you can go and register to vote and um I believe it's in the momsrising.org page and you can go there and find where to register
0: to vote. Everything that Zochi says is exactly right and you can just go to momsrising.org moms vote and you can register to vote and check your vote in English and Spanish there. Zochi When we're looking at discrimination in the United States of America, a lot of people don't realize the depth of discrimination that moms face and that is compounded discrimination due to structural racism with moms of color, to the extent that moms of races, of all races and ethnicity overall earn 74 cents to a dad's dollar, but latina moms earn just 51 cents to white dad's dollar which isn't okay can you talk a little bit about what's happening what are the solutions and when is latina equal payday and what that is yes all women
3: regardless of occupation geography age race and education um, face discrimination and bias at work with women of color experiencing compounded wage gaps As you mentioned, Latina mothers make 51 cents. Overall, Latinas make only 57 cents. And Latina Equal Pay Day is going to be acknowledged on October 5th of this year, meaning Latina moms have to work all 22 and 23 all the way to October 5th in order to make the same amount as a white man non-Hispanic.
0: And how can we solve this? This is not okay. We can't let this stand. How can we solve this?
3: The wage gap is not a single paycheck. And so we um, it's, it's complicated and we need um, several solutions to address the pay inequity for Latinas and for all women and mothers. We need to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. We need to pass the Paycheck Fairness Act. We need to build a care infrastructure that parents and care- caregivers can stay in attached to the workforce. There are many solutions to this specific problem. And especially for Latinas, we are seeing that we lose about a million dollars over the length of our careers. This means that our children will inherit that, that our children will not, be ina- will not be able to buy a house or even have the necessary means. This is inheriting a circle of poverty for our families and our communities is getting half of our paycheck. It's not possible. And it's not fair.
0: Absolutely not fair. So we have a giant, enormous problem. It's an emergency, an absolute emergency, and it must be solved. What can people do? How can they solve it?
3: Yes, that's an important question. We invite you to sign our petition um, for every equal payday that we are acknowledging. And you can find those petitions on our website at momsrising.org and in Spanish, at mamascompoder.org.
0: And it's so important to take action. Study after study shows that we can close the wage gap, not only that we must close the wage gap, which studies show that too, but studies show that when we pass policies like access to paid family medical leave for everyone, when a new baby arrives or a serious health crisis strikes, access to affordable childcare and access to fair pay for care workers, access to elder care access to equitable health care all of those policies have been moving in congress have been moving through state legislatures have been passed by most other industrialized nations and can be passed here too and when those policies are added up what they create is a closure of the wage gaps. And that's really important because when we close the wage gaps, it not only helps end discrimination, it also boosts businesses and boosts our economy. Because guess what? Women and moms make the majority of consumer purchasing decisions in a consumer-fueled economy. So when we don't have money to spend, when we're paid unfairly, then we all lose out, our economy loses out. In fact, some studies show that our GDP would be increased to three to 5% if we had pay parity. Half of children would be lifted out of poverty. And our Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell recently said to Congress that the fact that we don't have a care infrastructure is actually harming our international competitiveness. So it's not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. When we have all those actions up on momsrising.org, people can just go there and take action. Of course, we also need access to reproductive autonomy. Um, Zochi. what's happening there?
3: Oh, it's really uh, scary because abortion restrictions that we're seeing across the country disproportionately harm Latinas, Latinas, Black women and indigenous communities, um, low income communities, rural communities, immigrant communities, And this is really scary because um, we're we're seeing more and more attacks every day from places like Mississippi and Texas, and 42% of Latinas live in the 26 states that have banned or are likely to ban abortions, according to the National Partnership for Women and families and the national latina institute for reproductive justice It's it's a it's a very challenging time for women of color and low-income women in these states including latinas
0: it's a horrible time right now and here too we need to continue to take action We need to not just take one action and be like, okay, we're done, but keep raising our voices over and over again. You can do that through Moms Rising, through Mamas Compoder. You can do that with many other organizations in addition to Moms Rising, but the key thing is to keep the drumbeat up, keep being the squeaky wheel, keep saying. We need to end discrimination. We need bodily autonomy. We need the freedom to be able to decide what to do with our bodies. Thank you. Zochi, do you have any closing tips for our listeners about effective action. We just have about one minute left.
3: I would like to remind our listeners that 60% of people who obtain an abortion are already mothers. And so um, let's keep this in mind and let's fight for our mothers.
0: We all have a mother and thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you for being on Zochi. Thank you for everything. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Next up, we have the child care cliff. What the heck is it? Are we throwing our children off the cliff? Maybe. Learn how to help stop it in just a quick moment. We're to fight for love. Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rise. and we are joined by a powerful advocate, a person who moves mountains, moves policy, and moves dollars in Washington, D.C. We're joined by Julie Cashin, who is an author, and she's also with the Century Foundation. Welcome, Julie. Thanks, Kristen.
4: It's great to be with you.
0: I'm excited to be with you. I was looking through some notes and saw that you have an article out recently. You also have a report out recently. What should everyone know about what you're doing?
4: The biggest thing to know is that, you know, we were looking at the fact that the American Rescue Plan Act's Child Care Stabilization Funds have done exactly what we wanted them to do. They have stabilized the childcare sector. But the problem was before the pandemic even started, the sector was pretty precarious to begin with. While we were fighting for the American Rescue Plan, as you well know, we were also fighting for the Build Back Better Act, trying to build the comprehensive child care and early learning system that we all know we need. But that didn't happen. So the, the child care stabilization dollars were supposed to be a bridge to the other side, where you would have this amazing program that was being built. However, that didn't happen. Instead, what we're gonna have is this huge cliff where more than 3 million children could lose their childcare slots as this money goes away because it's temporary. Uh, Staffing shortages are gonna grow and tuition costs are likely going to rise.
0: And one of the things that you just said that I wanna go back to that I really think is important is you said uh, law passed, the American Rescue Plan during the pandemic And it worked. Now a lot of people think, oh, Congress passes a lot of laws and none of them work. There's this rampant cynicism out there. But we passed a lot of laws as a nation, a lot of legislation. We move forward a lot of policy that lifts the economy, lifts businesses, lifts families during the pandemic, and the results are coming in, and those policies worked. We had the child tax credit expansion that actually lifted more than 40% of young children and families out of poverty, the largest single year drop in child poverty in the history of our entire nation. It helped people go to work. It helped businesses not have supply chain issues. It helped our economy actually regrow it helped so much similarly the child care stabilization funds as you said worked so we have proof positive that policy change actually matters now the heartbreaking stuff is that it's not just a pandemic when we need these policies it's actually every day so if you don't mind julie can we go over how it worked well and what ways was this child care stabilization policy effective how did it work and what do we learn from that that makes us stand up and shout, we need to keep it going.
4: These dollars were used, number one, to help pay early educators more money. This is a huge issue, right? Childcare providers, early educators are paid poverty level wages. The main way without government intervention to increase their wages is to raise the price for parents who are already paying at the top of what they can afford, if not beyond what they can actually afford. So what this did was it said, okay, we're your partner in this. We're gonna work together to allow providers to raise wages for early educators. That matters for a lot of reasons. It matters because when we retain great people in childcare, our kids are better taken care of when they're not stressed economically about how they're going to pay their bills. They're really present with our kids. This is valuable work that is totally undervalued. And what's happening in reality is when Early educators are not paid enough money, they love kids, but then they go and pour coffee at Starbucks or sell appliances where they can make more money than they can in childcare. So we are losing people. Childcare is the one of the very few sectors that has not recovered from the pandemic. Most sectors have come back in the number of jobs, they've gone beyond. Childcare sector has stopped, still not reached the same number of jobs that they had before the pandemic started. However, it would be so much worse were it not for the stabilization dollars. Those dollars gave people raises. Those dollars were even used to give people health insurance. That made a huge difference. Also, for home-based providers, they were able to help pay their rent and their utilities. Remember, this was a time when inflation was pretty significant. So rent was going up, utilities were going up. Parents were feeling that. They didn't have a lot more money that they could give to childcare, but... Child care providers didn't have to worry about that because they had these stabilization grants that were coming in that helped them cover those increased costs. These dollars made such a difference,
0: such a difference. So in our learning about the dollars making a difference, first I have so many questions. I have so many questions. One, I get really frustrated when we have public policy that is finally passed. It works so well. It helps businesses. It helps the economy. It helps families. It helps kids. It helps everything. Like if you look at the checkbox, it's like win, 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 And then it sunsets. Do you get frustrated about that?
4: I get frustrated. I get angry. I get sad. I'm all those
0: things. All those things, but also like secretly also hopeful. I'm going to just share this with you because sometimes people are like so cynical. They're thinking everything's broken. There's no fix that we can do to work. There's no solutions that are actually possible that will make a difference in my life and our lives in my community. And, but I'm telling you, we have proof, like numerical, mathematical proof (laughs) that you can make policy differences and it has a positive impact across our economy and our families. What do you think it's going to take to, as you said earlier, not lobby, but educate Congress about why it's the right thing for them to do to keep these policies from sunsetting?
4: Yeah, I think Congress needs to hear these stories. Right. You know, we have heard from so many folks, the National Association for the Education of Young Children interviewed a lot of folks. And I think that's where I heard this, that Lorna Atkins, who runs growing places in Huntington, West Virginia, said there are a lot of people in childcare that are going to close down because of this. It's just a fact. Brooke Skidmore talked about um how she runs a program with her brother, we're backed into a corner, we can't decrease wages, you know, so telling these stories so that folks know what's going on. And the reality is, you know, I think the more folks see that this is real, this is, this is happening, this is going to impact not just those children and those families, but also the employers of those parents, right, who the parents want to work, they want to be there, but they're just, they have these disruptions, right? And so, I think we need to keep telling these stories and painting the picture of how this is a problem that impacts all of us and that there are solutions that can solve it for all of us.
0: It's so important. So, What can people do? People who are listening who are now like fired up, happy, yay, solutions are possible and also annoyed, frustrated. Why aren't we doing them already?
4: Yeah. But there are a number of groups who've called on Congress to enact $16 billion in emergency child care funding. This is step one. Step one is let's get through this current crisis. Let's get through this emergency. We need $16 billion. I know that's a lot of money, billion with a B, but that really would help to mitigate this crisis that we see coming. So calling on Congress to support that is number one. And in addition, we need to build the system that we have been working for and fighting for that would allow us to have the comprehensive child care and early learning program that will give parents options, all the options they can imagine that will give them the peace of mind that their children are safe and nurtured and well cared for while they are at work or at school or taking care of other ways that they need to thrive.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure, for sure, for sure. So, when we're looking at what's happening in America right now, and you have been so effective inside the Beltway with Congress for so long, do you see us slowly making progress? What kind of hope are you living with each day?
4: One thing I think about is that, you know, we, Congress first introduced the Child Care for Working Families Act, which is, you know, one of the big bills out there to pro, promote childcare for, you know, this comprehensive model and vision that I was talking about, right? In 2017, that was the first time it got introduced. That bill passed the House in 2021. Now, it didn't pass the Senate, which is why we don't have it today. And that's the downside, obviously. But to move a bill in five years from, like, a political perspective and inside the Beltway perspective, that's really fast progress. And right now what we're seeing is this issue isn't going away. We're hearing loud and clear in the news. We've seen local news stories about this in almost every community. This is a big deal and people are paying attention to it. Now, one of the things that uh, opponents want is for everyone to see it as an individual problem. You solve it for yourself. Moms, you should feel guilty if you haven't figured this out by now. But The reality is it's not on moms. This is not a DIY situation. This is something that the government needs to be a part of, partner with us, partner with our families to do this, right? And I I do think it's possible. And I think people are starting to understand that in really meaningful ways.
0: I agree. I had to ask you that because this moment is so frustrating because it's like within our reach for a solution that we absolutely know works, that $16 billion in childcare stabilization funds has to pass through congress has to happen it just absolutely has to happen because of the child care cliff that is happening due to the american rescue plan funds ending in september and we are moving forward even if it's at a snail pace we are not Stuck. And the reason why we're not stuck, as you mentioned, is because moms, dads, people, caregivers, care workers are sharing our stories with members of Congress about what these policies have meant to us in terms of helping us and about what these policies or the lack thereof them has meant to us in terms of hurting us when we don't have access to these policies. And so I see big change happening. And I just want to tell all our listeners, don't give up. The level of cynicism in America worries me because democracy still works. I had somebody last night tell me, how can you even still believe in democracy? I'm like, I of course I believe in democracy. Your vote counts, your voice counts. I get to see it every day, the actual impact. And Julia, somebody who is again in the beltway, inside Congress, in those marble halls, um, providing witness testimony to congressional hearings, can you share a little bit about how you see the voices of people outside about white actually making a difference just to fire people up to keep shouting?
4: Absolutely. You know, people's stories are one of the most compelling things. You know, I I worked for the late Ted Kennedy back in the day and every time he would talk on the Senate floor or to the media, he would want to talk about his constituents. He would want to talk about, here's the story of the person back home and how this issue is impacting them and be able to kind of paint a picture of why this mattered to him. And hearing the story allowed him to just feel it on such a deep level and then be able to share that with others and compel others to move forward and make progress as a result of that. So I think it's so important. I also, Kristen, just want to share the other thing that just gives me so much hope in life right now is just that it was like women power summer, right? That you've got the Barbie movie with, you know, Breta and America and you've got, um, Beyonce and Taylor Swift and women's money, mom's money, especially moved the economy this summer. And if we can do that, there are so many more things we can do.
0: So many things we can do. Thank you so much for being on. How can people follow you?
4: I can be found on
0: Twitter still for a few more minutes. Can.
4: Um, but all, everything I write is on the TCF website, the Center Foundation website, uh, tcf.org.
0: Thank you, thank you. Thanks for being on. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for saving our nation again and again and again. Thank you, Julie Cashin.
4: Thanks, Kristen.
0: As the show closes this week, for everybody who's feeling cynical or who's feeling down, we want to let you know that we see time and time again, that your voice, you're talking to your friends, families, and neighbors, you're reaching out to your member of Congress, you sharing your story makes a giant difference. In the past year alone, you, listeners, have helped pass the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act at the federal level. The Pump for Working Mothers Act, you've helped make an expansion of one year postpartum healthcare coverage. You've helped make a 30% increase in childcare system funding, prescription drug cost reductions, and so much more. We know we have a long, long, long way to go until we build a nation where everyone can truly thrive, but we also know none of us are in this alone and all of us are powerful together. The wins that we've had along the way show us the way forward to even greater wins into the future, so thank you. Well, that's it for our show today. Thanks so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Here goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom! We'll catch you next week.